Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of Long Night with Vish Khanna is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, CFRU 93.3 FM, and Granddad's Donuts, and was recorded before a studio audience on Saturday, February 9th, 2019. Coming to you live from Workman Arts in Toronto, Canada, it's Long Night with Vish Khanna! On tonight's show, Cyrus Marcus Ware is here. We have Robin Maynard in the house. Desmond Cole is going to talk to us. My name is James Keese. Our house band is the Bicycles. And please welcome to the stage a man ready to make several awkward jokes. Be Thank you very much for being here at uh, Long Night, at Long Winter. Thank you to James Keast. How about a round of applause for James Keast, the bicycles. It's nice to see you all here at Workman Arts uh, Center. Uh, let's begin. We have a, an esteemed panel. Is everyone here for the show, or are you here by accident? Are you excited about our panel, for crying out loud? Good. Our first guest is a Vanier scholar, a multi-award winner, a visual artist, a community activist, a researcher, a youth advocate, and an educator who was once named Toronto's best queer activist by Now Magazine. He has authored many, many pieces and co-edited the book Queering Urban Justice, Queer of Color Formations in Toronto, which was published by University of Toronto Press in 2018. Please join me in welcoming to the show Cyrus Marcus Ware. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Cyrus. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm cold. You're cold. I'm cold. I was outside. Do you have? Where's your? Do you want a jacket or something? I'm good. You're I'm good. good. The, yeah. the lights are warming yes, me it's up. Actually, it's like being in the sun. <coughs> it's very warm in front of the lights. Yes. But uh, yes, how are you? I'm very busy. There's this phenomenon. I don't know if you've heard of it called. African Liberation Month or Black History Month. Yes. And all of the black artists get really, 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 really busy in February and have no time to do anything else because we're asked to get busy. Yes, I wondered about that myself. Uh, how do you feel about that, that it's 
the, the, as Chris Rock once joked, the shortest, coldest month of the year <laughs> is Black History Month. Uh, how do you feel about being so busy? At one, well, you're busy. I'm busy all, all, all the time. All of the time, yes. So where do you live in Toronto? I do. How long have you been here? I've been living in, I was born in Montreal. I grew up between here and Memphis, Tennessee. Excuse me, my family's from the south. Oh. And uh, I've been, I moved to Vancouver briefly in the 90s. Everybody was doing it. And then now, uh, I, I've been living back here since 1999. Okay, and how are you finding life in Toronto? I love living here. You do? I love it. Are there uh, challenges to living in Toronto? I mean, compared to some of the other cities you've lived in. I mean, one of the things that strikes me the most about Toronto is that there's a lot of black people here. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's, I've realized about myself, this is somewhere that is important for me when I think about where I want to live. When I moved to Vancouver, I was like, wow, I was always the only black person in the room. And although, because I work in the arts, that's still sometimes true here. Um, but I'm pumped. That it, it is like, uh, it is a lot better being in a city like this where there's uh, just so many different kinds of people. Right. So you mentioned a, a few. That, where where would you say this? What city did you grow up in, per se? Like of the I would say Toronto. I would say Weston. Weston. Okay. okay. Yeah. And is there anything about your uh, the, the, your experiences growing up in Toronto that particularly inform the work you do now? And by the way, as I mentioned in my introduction, it's hard to pin down exactly what your work is. You do so many things. But is that, even that, that, dy that dynamism, if you will, like the fact that you do so many things, is that, do you think, a result of living in a city like Toronto? Well, I grew up in Weston, which is sort of like Lawrence and Weston Road area, and I grew up in a community that was really divided by class, like super, super divided by class. And my own experience being a queer kid, you know, being somebody who later came out as trans, being black, being in this mixed race family, I had all these experiences of difference. You know, we were working class, we were not, we were literally on the wrong side of the train tracks that divide Weston, which now is where the up train goes to the airport. I, so took it, I took it today. Yeah, that, so yeah. That, train, yeah. that train track literally divides the neighborhood sort of between the rich and the poor. Hmm. And so being in that environment made me realize that some people are afforded a lot of things, a lot of privilege, and others aren't. Right. And uh, that sort of drove me to get involved in activism. It drove me to get involved ultimately in the movement for black lives. And it really shaped my artistic practice, which is largely about activist aesthetics and activist culture. Hmm. Are there particular misperceptions about the work you do in activist culture that you would like to address? Like, are there things that people think about what you do or its efficacy even that you feel like discussing at this point? I'm just curious. Well, I think that there's the idea that activism happens because of one or two really active people sort of driving something. This idea of the sort of solo lone great leader. And I think that that's a myth that we need to break apart. Activism and, and, and sort of movements happen because of thousands and thousands of people giving a little bit of time, you know? And so, you know, recognizing the people who are doing the photocopying, the people who are picking up the kids, the people who are making sure that there's food for the event, the people who are sewing the banners, like there's just so many roles that are part of activist movements, hmm. not just the person speaking on the microphone or the person, you know, in front of the camera on the six o'clock six o'clock news, do right? You th do you think the individual is highlighted as a, is that a media construction or something? They need to pick someone to assign to be the leader of, you're right, uh, clearly these are mass movements, 
Is that what's going on? or I think that makes up for an easier news story, absolutely. But I would go even further and suggest that there is a strategy by the system and by the state to having you know the lone charismatic leader that is thus easier to pick off, right? Or to um, you know defame or to critique. You know, it's much harder to attack a movement that is a, a series of cells mm. or a large community of people. Right. That's yeah. that's an excellent point. But you, as I mentioned earlier, you do all sorts of things. You seem to feel some responsibility in your work to. Uh, to, to bolster your communities, your various communities. Is that fair? Do you feel like a, a responsibility in your work? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my m more recent work has been around portraiture, and I've been drawing portraits of activists 12 feet tall, 20 feet tall, um, and trying to create an archive of the people who are involved in these movements that I'm in, you know, organizing with, um, trying to create little moments of reverence, of celebration of their labor, of their work, and ultimately to try to get people to want to care about them, because if they want to care about them, then it will matter that they're, that they stay alive, you know, that their lives right. will matter. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, in all, I mentioned the different things you do, the end products are different. The, what you just described uh, focuses on your visual art, I suppose that's fair to say. Is there kind of a, a purposeful objective in your other work that you can, I don't, I don't expect you to, to generalize about it, but do you feel that in all of the things you do? Like, I gotta, I, this needs to accomplish something on some level. This needs to potentially change some minds or empower people. When I was uh, in art school, then I read this article about an artist who beaded newspaper headlines. She would create these beaded uh, curtains. I'm just blanking on her name. Art historians in the room will know. Mm -hmm. um, but she she would bead newspaper curtain newspaper headlines, and she said that the reason why she did it about newspaper headlines was because if it was, she was going to do something that was so laborious, it had to be about something really important. Right. And that always you know struck with me. And I and I have chosen to to create these projects that are larger than life in a lot of ways both through activism and through my art practice, but it has to be about something that is very important. And to me, that is the self-determination of all people. Right. So making sure that we all get to make it to the future, that we all get to survive, and more than that, we get to thrive. That seems ultimately super, that's why I wake up in the morning, that's why I do any of the things that I do. Can you talk about the distinction in the reception of your work from uh, members of, say, the communities you're trying to highlight and I don't know, people outside of those communities, have you noticed maybe a disparity in, in how people respond to things, what they assume your objective is? Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about sort of the messaging and the, and the movement for black lives. I think that for a lot of white people who grew up in white supremacist societies, there's a way that white supremacy is invisibilized and it's taught to be invisibilized. Normalized, and so, in fact. And in fact, absolutely. Yeah. And so the anti-blackness that goes hand in hand in, with that is sort of, you know, tied up in these bodies and in these experiences. And so that, you know, necessarily affects how people interact with me, with, with our movement, right. with our art practice, you know. Th there might be some who have a knee-jerk oppositional <laughs> reaction, right? Yeah, without necessarily understanding why, perhaps, you know, because these are taught to be unconscious biases. Uh, there is a, a growing phenomenon I've noticed, uh, particularly since 
uh, Donald Trump entered the White House in the States and, and how uh, his message and his sort of minions are manifesting themselves uh, around uh, the world. Um, and uh, they've existed before Trump as well, I should say. But I've noticed that white people are now afraid of white people. Um, <laughs> Do you see where I'm coming from with that? Do you really? It's it's almost co comical, um, but it's also sort of it, it's all very frightening and disturbing to me. But I have noticed. Have you noticed that? Do you know what I mean? I think so. I mean, like there's white people. Like you say, we were talking about normalization, and uh, and and the fact that it was sort of hidden racism on some level, or it can be hidden, and that's why people don't want to. Uh, they they put you. They want to sort of put your message aside and say that's not true. <laughs> That's a that's a that's just that's not yeah. happening consistently. So what the rise I think of what's going on in the states and here, uh, what I think is coming. To, white people are beginning to realize, oh shit, they weren't lying. This is real. There are white people among us who are horrible, and it just seems to have taken all of this horrible stuff that we're going through for this to come to pass. Does that make it more clear? Yeah, and I mean, I th it makes me think about this thing that I read, uh, w you know, which was this take on, I'm going to give you a bit of a spoiler here, on Bird Box, where what if the thing that they were all looking at was white supremacy, and it just like... As an analysis, you mean? Yeah, the, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. this idea that... The thing that I haven't seen the Bird Box, so you, you spoil it away. But I just, toy is there I just spoiled it. Is there white supremacy in Bird Box, or are you saying There's that's white supremacy everywhere. Everywhere. Yes, that's a good point. That's a that's a valid point. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So, but that's a reading people had. But of this Bird Box? reading was yeah. that you know that white people are so unable to see white supremacy that when it's right in front of them, they just uh, end their <laughs> they end their lives. They just can't. Is that the end of the movie? You're ruining the thing. I didn't know. Is, is it the, came out in December. I know. <laughs> I have two kids. I can't keep up with everything. It's hard. Well, I appreciate your perspectives. We have uh, to move along because we have uh, two other great guests, but you're going to join us for a panel. Yes, thank right? you. Is yes. that, oh, sorry, before you go, is there something you want to, uh, is there something exciting you're working on? I know you say you're very busy, but is there a particular project that you're excited about? Uh, I'm going to be performing in a play. This is something that I don't normally do. I, uh, do you have an acting background at all? No, so oh. it's a terrible idea. Um, uh, I'm performing in a play at Rhubarb. This is a, a, a real stretch for me. It's all about a single trans dad in the movement for black lives. And all the things that happened to him. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, and I've never acted before, so we'll see how it goes. Well, I'm sure if Sandra Bullock can do it, you can do it too. It'll be fine. <laughs> you did watch Bird Box. No, no, I just know she's in it. I know she's in it. I've seen Speed, <laughs> right. I guess, is what I'm getting at. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, uh, and then Robin Maynard will be joining us. Another round of applause for Cyrus Thank Marcus. You. Welcome back to Long Night. How about another round of applause for Cyrus Marcus Ware? Our next guest is a Toronto-based writer whose work on race, gender, and discrimination has appeared in the Washington Post, World Policy Journal, the Toronto Star, and Maison Neuve magazine, among others. She's the author of Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. I have a copy of it right here. Does anyone have a copy of this book? Remarkable book. 
Uh, this is a best-selling and hugely acclaimed book, which was published in 2017 by Fernwood Publishing. We're so thrilled that she's here with us today. So please say hello to Robin Maynard, everyone. Robin Maynard. Hi, Robin. Hi there. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Welcome to Long Night. It's nice to be here. It's hey, a everybody. Nice crowd. It's a good crowd, too. I like the crowd. They seem like nice people. And... Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, we spoke when? Uh, last year, I think we spoke? Sometime, Sometime over the ago. phone, yeah. yeah it's nice to, to speak. Well, for people, there are people listening from around the world, potentially, and uh, people here who may not be familiar with you, so I'm going to go over some ground we've probably covered the last time we spoke. Namely, uh, I understand, uh, the last time we spoke, you were in Montreal. Mm-hmm. You're in Toronto now? Yeah, I moved to Toronto about six months ago, okay. and over the summer. What prompted yeah. the move from Montreal to Toronto? I mean, slowly I was losing all of my black queer friends to this city over the course of the last 10 years until finally there was more of us here than there. <laughs> so I've been thinking about making that transition for a long time. Were you, say, were you losing them from Montreal? Yeah, there's the exodus, the continual exodus where everyone eventually ends up in black Mecca of Canada here. I see. So as Cyrus said, I mean, the, just in terms of sheer numbers, in terms of the community, uh, I also I really love Montreal and I've spent most of my adult life there, but I just felt that it was time for a little bit of a shift, at least for a little, I don't know where I'll end up necessarily, <laughs> but I'm really, really happy to be amongst this really exciting community of people out here. Can you, I know you love Montreal, I love Montreal, but can you see a reason why people would be m- potentially more comfortable living in Toronto than Montreal if they're black and queer, as you mentioned? I think it's just a numbers thing. Oh, I you see. know, there's a really beautiful and long-standing community in Montreal. If you think about, you know, people that have been, you know, the, the first, you know, enslaved people even in this, in what was then, you know, pre-Confederation Canada landed in New France, right? So there's obviously right. a long presence there. You right. know, Marie-Joseph Angelique, the enslaved um, black woman who burnt down, uh, supposedly, uh, the old port of Montreal. There, You know, there's a really long and uh, rich history there and a really vibrant community. But I do think that language is one thing. And also just, I think... There is a really significant and huge population here, and that means that you can do different kinds of things, and that means you can take different kinds of space. Right. And having that space and having that space to breathe is something that can be um, really life-affirming. Well, that's, that's great to hear. That's, that's excellent to hear. Now, where were you actually, where are you from originally, so to speak? I actually grew up in Winnipeg. Winnipeg? Mm-hmm. How was that? <laughs> I had, sorry, we had a guest on the show uh, last month, uh, Shanti Marastica. Comedian, I don't know if you know Shanti, and Shanti described Winnipeg as the birthplace of racism, uh, as a joke, but I think quite sincere. Did were you, were you <laughs> did you have a good time growing up in Winnipeg? That's I mean, the context I'm giving you to describe how great Winnipeg might be. By the way, I apologize. Maybe you had the opposite, but uh, was it a nice time? <laughs> I mean, arguably, it's also something that really became clear to me doing the research that I did for for my book. Yeah. Is that, of course, there's extreme racism really that permeates this entire you know country continent right. in a major way right so i don't think you can point to one central place yes. but i do think that i did give me a particular political perspective so the you know my work is so much about black liberation but what's something that growing up in what's very much an apartheid city in which you know the drinking water of winnipeg was coming from you know indigenous territories where people didn't have access to water right you know so i think that gives a certain perspective in terms of the kind of ongoing apartheid and like very living reality of settler colonialism as well that colors the kind of racial injustice that we see here yeah so that's something that was very visible to me in Winnipeg. So um, I, I introduced you as a writer, ostensibly. Do you consider yourself an academic, per se? 
I consider myself many things. I would say, you know, right now I'm actually uh, doing a PhD, um, but I always thought it was important to actually claim that terminology of intellectual work. And I think that that's something that we can consider ourselves doing intellectual work, whether that's activism, whether that's more scholarly, whether that's in a published book, or whether that's just, you know, in the conversations that we're having amongst our communities. So I actually think that Yes, I'm technically an academic now, but I do think that this kind of work is always, you know, life building and life affirming and building a hugely, you know, intelligent project that right. is always, if that's what you want to think about academia as, as producing really valuable knowledge, then I think that absolutely we're all academics in that way. I agree. I agree. But I, when, I, I, when I read your book, uh, Policing Black Lives, I was brought back to my undergraduate studies. There was one professor who was teaching black history the university I went to, and I was just floored by the texts. Um, there was a book called uh, White Violence, Black Response. I don't know if you know this one, but it just floored me, and it was, it was similar to your book. It was an itemized history of just this horrible time in this country that a lot of people don't uh, realize occurred. Uh, we were kind of talking about this with uh, Cyrus as well. Have you been surprised at how surprised people are by what is in your book in terms of the history of this country? I would say that I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't believe that at least there's a certain a certain kind of surprise, but it's almost a surprise that it's hard to I think that there's both a surprise that of course like people are coming into some kind of realities for the first time, but there's also a certain kind of culpability that I think gets put to the side when we talk about surprise oh, because we I have, see. you know, every few years or even every few months when there's sort of like black activists are in the street decrying some, you know, horrific uh, kind of violence that has taken place and people are Surprised that this is happening, like acting as if it's suddenly new, as if this is suddenly new information, as if this has never happened before. Right. That like this kind of er there's a surprise because of there's a certain built-in erasure, right? That means that every single time something happens, we act like it's a revelatory moment when in fact this is you know a 400-year history. So I do think that there is a certain level of surprise, but that surprise also comes from a very deliberate erasure and an erasure that's very ongoing. That. The, the public kind of takes part in, right? And sort of allowing our, people to become outraged every, every 10 years when the Toronto Star puts out an expose about racial profiling as if it's not going to, as if there hasn't been an expose every 10 years. Right. right? So. so is it, so are you basically arguing that people have blinders on to this issue? They just repress it. They don't accept that it's real. I think there's a certain purposefulness that we have to acknowledge at this time because, you know, even putting together what I did for this book, it's not as if it wasn't, like, publicly available it's not benign. information. I yeah. wasn't going into these, like, deep, uncovered archives that had never come to the forefront. And there's a certain way, you know, in the, some of the mainstream media where people will say, the first book that addresses the legacy of slavery in Canada, um, when I'm building off of the works of, you know, these incredible slavery You've historians like Charmaine Nelson yeah, and Harvey yeah. Amani Whitfield, like, this work is, is out there, and people are doing such incredible work that continues to just sort of be become pushed aside and then become yet again surprising yeah, <laughs> when another person yeah, articulates it, right? Yeah. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say yeah. is that to be surprised takes a certain amount of work <laughs> in the society that we're actually living in today, right? So it takes a you just have to go to a different neighborhood yeah. and that surprise would go away. You just have to read the news in a critical way and that surprise would go You're away. You're saying that it takes a certain amount of ignorance to be surprised as well. Yeah, but ignorance, I'm trying to... There's an... There's ignorance that happens by accident, and yeah. I think that's where political education is really important for me, and that's something I've always been a part of doing, but yeah. then I think that there's also an element of it that is systemic, right? And it's systemically reproduced over right. and over. So you mentioned how your time in Winnipeg may have shaped your worldview, may have shaped uh, the person you are today in terms of the work you're doing. Do you have, uh, I asked Cyrus a similar question, like, 
do you have an objective in your work? Did you feel like you were filling a... V it doesn't sound like you felt like you were filling a void because you said you were building upon what other people had done, but you were adding to the conversation. What did you feel you had to contribute to this conversation? I'm somebody that's a writer, but I'm also somebody that's been involved in community-based activism against racial profiling, um, you know, particularly against the harms you know, experienced by black women for a long time. So I think that I felt like I was writing to and with a movement in some ways, right? That it was part of this, you know, what really is like a global black liberation renaissance that of course isn't new and is part of you know, what our ancestors have been fighting for, you know, hundreds of years before yeah. us. But I think I was really trying to contribute to something that was freedom oriented mm. and really wanted to add to that orientation that is being done, I think, so beautifully around this city, around this country, really around the world um, that we're all having, we're all adding in the different ways that we can with the skill sets that we uh, can towards thinking about what uh, liberated and transformed uh, world and future could be. Right. So even though it's a book about the past, it's very much one that's leaning into the future. Well, you do sort of time travel, as I recall. Like, uh, I had read the book a couple of years, when, when, when last we spoke, but I remember you kind of, I felt like there was real resonance today in a lot of the stories I was reading from whatever, throughout history. I mean, these things are cyclical. Like, th this racism is not, like you say, it's systemic. It hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah, it's the past that is not the past, right? It's yes, the past exactly. that is living with us in the present, and it's right. the past of the people that have died before us, and we still see people, yeah. you know, being harmed in such similar in such similar ways. So it's really about that continuity yes. and about exposing the continuity. Yes. You mentioned that uh, political education is one way to um, perhaps bring these issues to light for people. Um, yeah. Have you... And I know you've received lots of praise for this book. Uh, have you noticed it actually resulting in the implementation of positive change? Have you seen it manifest itself in something more positive? I know it's being taught. Is it being taught at schools now? It is being yeah. taught um, in some schools as well as a lot of universities. So yeah. I think it really is contributing to like a sort of knowledge shift yeah. and a sort of acknowledgement shift. Um, you know, when I went to uh, the last time I was in university before this, the realities of anti-blackness in Canada were totally non-present, right? You would yeah. talk about racism in the American context and the Canadian context was invisibilized, and I think that's beginning to shift. But I wouldn't attribute that to just my own self. I think that what we see with the work of Black Lives Matter in Toronto, for example, I mean, being camped out outside of police headquarters for two weeks made a major shift that was also part of that, right? right? And right. Uh, there's been... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have, you know, our comrades here to thank for that. There's what, you know, the, the five-city response after Abdirahman Abdi was killed was also something that made a major shift, right? So, again, my book was, like, helping to elevate, I think, what was happening and some of the resonance as to why it was happening. But I would never want to take sort of an individual credit for yeah. any kind of shift because I think you can only have a shift. It's never like a document that can shift something, right? It's a culture. It's forcing a population to acknowledge things, and one book could never do that. You have to have many other kinds yeah. of actions that are happening on the ground so I think I gave like a certain tool <laughs> to help further that and that's something that I'm really glad to have contributed to so are you ultimately I mean you moved to Toronto and which is a complicated city in a lot of ways it sounds to me like you're optimistic on some level about there being positive change you mentioned some examples of that is that fair to say I mean, it's just hard for me to remain optimistic and not cynical uh, on some level um, but I'm curious about your perspective on that I mean, if you look at what the government is doing, I feel no optimism at all. Right. <laughs> if you think about the, ri the rise of white supremacy in this uh, city, province, in Quebec with the election of the CAC, um, the, the kind of national hostilities we're seeing around immigration, like it's at the level of the state, I think what is happening is, if anything, 
the violent status quo is even regressing further. Yeah. But where I see um, what I guess I, I don't know if I would call it optimism, but I do believe that, of course, uh, we need to work towards yes. shifting that. I do yes. believe that there are other futures that we can work to create and that we're doing that in the present. And what the yeah. present is, is about trying to bring that different future into view. So I think we need to keep that other possible future close to us yeah. and keep it here with us so yeah. that we can actually work towards it, even if when it seems like, I don't think that Doug Ford is gonna bring about those changes. No, right? But not. I think that we have yeah. the capacity to force, you know, people have forced governments to their knees before. People have yeah. forced all kinds of massive transformational shifts that we didn't see. You know, decolonization was one of those things globally, even if it didn't end certain elements. You know, we've seen shifts before, and I do think that we need to believe that we could do that again. So. Well put. Um, I want to give you a moment to talk about uh, the future f for you. What are you working on? Uh, I've been talk uh, talking about a book that came out in 2017, uh, primarily. What are you working on that you're excited about at the moment? Um, I'm working on a few new things. I'm working on an eventual new book right now that's really looking at transnational black freedom struggles uh, that I'm very... I'm really happy to be just in that beginning of the long ass process that it will be. <laughs> um, and I also just recently finished something that gave me a lot of joy after finishing Policing Black Lives where I was trying to think through um, Afrofuturism and think through what it really means in terms of how, you know, how black people have kind of already survived the apocalypse. So what does it mean to be doing this? Right. If, if you really think about what the transatlantic slave trade was, if you think mm. about even what colonialism was in this country, so what does it mean for us to really think about having already survived to the end of the world and to be creating the kind of futures that we want to see in this sort of post-apocalyptic moment? So I wrote a piece um, about that that I'm sort of still thinking through, I think, their reverberations of like, how can we think about black resistance movements now as mm. kind of like Afrofuturist practice, as kind of, um, yeah. So. <laughs> that sounds exciting. Yeah. Is this piece out? It is. And where can people find it? Can they find it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's through Topia Journal. Okay. It's called Post-Apocalyptic Blackness. Okay. Um, and I just think that there's, after I think focusing so much on just generations and generations of harm, I also just wanted to think about how can we also reconceive of the work that we're doing, given what we've already survived, and how can we sort of recenter that future orientation right. of our movements. So. That sounds very fascinating and remarkable. I appreciate all the work you do, and as you know, I'm a fan and an admirer, so I thank you for being on the show. You're going so to come back for our panel. I will. You're not, we need you on the panel. By the way, have you seen Bird Box? I have not seen Bird Box, not so either, now yeah. I know that it ends with white supremacy, but that's the end of many movies, so no, it hasn't no, 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 I, technically spoiled I, it yet. I'd already forgotten. <laughs> you spoil it again. All right. Jeez. Robin Maynard, everyone. Thank you. We'll take a quick break, and when, we're, when we come back, Desmond Cole will be here. Thank you. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Pizza Truck Darrow and the Bookshelf, two fine establishments in Guelph, Ontario. What do you like about Pizza Truck Darrow, sir? Well, I love the pepperoni pizza. It's awesome. And do you like to wash it all down with a specific drink? Oh, yes. I like the Brio. Oh, I love the Brio as well. You can learn more about Pizza Truck Darrow at trocaderoguelph.ca. Best crust in the city, by the way. Yep. And you can call them for pickup or delivery at 519-829-2444. What is the bookshelf? It's not It's not a physical bookshelf. It's a bookstore that also has a bar in it and, and a movie theater. That is absolutely correct, and they're located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, and they are the best. You can learn more about them 
at bookshelf.ca. That's right, Pizza Truck and Arrow and the Bookshelf. Pizza, books, movies, drinks. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One more time for the bicycles, everyone. The hardest working band in show business. Thank you very much. And how about another round of applause for Robin Maynard? Thank you, Robin. Our next guest is an activist, broadcaster, and freelance journalist in Toronto whose work has appeared in the Toronto Star, Toronto Life, Walrus, Vice, Now Magazine, Torontoist, and Ethnic Isle, among others. He is currently working on his highly anticipated first book, on the experiences of black Canadians. We're thrilled he's here to make his third appearance on Long Night, so please join me in saying hello to Desmond Cole. Desmond, thank you so much. Hi. It's nice to see you again. You too. How you been? I'm okay right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling you, wonderful. You have it's a nice like, drink? What are you drinking there? Uh, I don't, it's the mystery drink. Thank you, Ash. <laughs> and I'm just happy to have it and happy to be here. It's nice to have you back on the show. Now, uh, the last second, no, the last time you were on, we talked about the Blue Jays. Which was awesome. Yes, no one ever asked you about sports. I like sports. <laughs> Raptors fans, come find me later on. Yeah. I like sports. That, that's a thing. When you develop a reputation of being uh, you know, an activist, outspoken, people think that's all you're interested in, which is not a terrible thing, but you have other interests. Could you believe? I don't. People can't believe it sometimes. That's why I wanted you on the Blue Jays panel. But anyway, it's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, now, you've lived in Toronto for how long again? Almost 15 years now. 15 years. And where were you before that? I was in Oshawa before that. What? People, that never happened. People who have never been to Oshawa, clearly. No, what are I'm you kidding. saying? I was making fun of you How and them you. at the same time, I guess. Um, I like Oshawa. I, I like Oshawa. You have fine. to say that now. Yeah, now but. I have to. <laughs> I what? Tigers? There's tigers in Oshawa? There, I, oh, okay. What's that? That's my elementary school, straight up. Really? Wow, we're talking afterwards. Do you do you know Desmond? Oh my God, it's Dan! <laughs> <laughs> shout out, shout out, shout out, St. Thomas. Welcome um, to my new show, Oshawa Reunited. Yeah. Um, I I I grew up mostly in Oshawa, Ontario. I was born in Red Deer, Alberta. Wow, you got all the working class cities in Canada down. Yeah, 
And I grew up in Oshawa. I went to school for a couple of years in Kingston, Ontario to university. That didn't really work out for me. So after a quick stop back in Oshawa, I moved to Toronto in 2004 in the okay. summer. I grew up in, uh, you didn't ask, but I grew up in Cambridge, <laughs> Ontario, which is, I would say, sort of similar to Oshawa in a sense. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a little more affluence, I would think. You're, Oshawa is known as kind of a working class town, right? Most definitely. So at some point I became aware through my peers of my difference, you know, that I wasn't the same as a lot of them. And it hadn't really occurred to me until someone brought it up. Were you aware of your difference in Oshawa? If you felt different, I should say. Oshawa was actually the place where I started to discover that because I grew up, I was born and raised with my sister in Red Deer, Alberta, and I was too young at that time to really consider notions of race and ethnicity and difference in the ways that I do now. Yeah, of course. So I know my parents had their experiences with racism and with discrimination in Red Deer, but I was too young. So, yeah, um, actually... So I am, I am uh, working on my first book. I'm, I'm so excited. You know, I'm a big fan of both of the previous panelists, and Robin's just had the experience, and I've been watching you go on tour and do your book thing, and it's just been so gratifying to see you get accolades for all the incredible work Absolutely. you've done, Robin. And, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to being there myself. I'll share a quick snippet that's actually in the book. Sure. I was a kid in Oshawa in a class with almost all other white students in grade one. We were coloring and you know, you pass around the pencil crayons and you share and I heard somebody asking for the skin color pencil crayon in my all white almost class. There was one kid who was mixed and I didn't really know even what mixed was. But everybody's talking about this skin color pencil crayon that they want to use. And it's like this like light peach kind of thing. And I had this moment at six years old being like, they're not talking about me. Mm. And they don't maybe even know that they're not talking about me. Right. But I know they don't mean me when they say pass the skin color crayon. And that fucked me up. At six years old, yeah. it fucked you up. And I remember it was not long after then that I, I, I have been a writer my whole life. When I learned how to write, I would keep little books and little journals everywhere. And it wasn't long after that experience that I'm telling you about that I started writing in this journal that I wished not to be black because I was ashamed. Hmm. I was ashamed that for this, these kids, they were having this normal experience that excluded me. And I didn't even want to talk about it in school because I didn't want to further be outside. But that was, that was me in Oshawa at six years old realizing that I couldn't be the same as the other kids. So you're writing about it uh, almost journal keeping. Yes. You're not conveying this pain to your peers, to anyone. No, I didn't know that in grade one the teacher reads your journal and oh my you know, god, oh it wasn't a private journal, it was that. Well, it was the kind that yeah, and 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 so like these were conversations that I ended up having to have with my parents and things. Why do you feel like that? Right. And as I got older, these kind of things that I was a kid and I would write them for myself, I started feeling more inclined to write and share them with other people, and that's how I got into journalism. Okay, so that pain manifested itself in something positive, but 
was was there there was obviously well, I don't mean to say obviously but I know we talked about some of this before you've had negative experiences as an adult as a young male like how how much of this was how much of this caused rage for you how much of this caused you to lash out well at first I didn't uh, when I was say 1920 and I was a university student at Queens I didn't lash out I said that people who protest are not doing anything. That's They're right. They're spinning their wheels. You, you did say that. I remember. I, yeah. I, you remember that? I remember, you, <laughs> said, I, I remember uh, you telling me this the first time we yeah, spoke. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was like that. And I was very resistant to people fighting because I thought, what's the point? And then I dropped out of school. My mom said, you can't come back and live with us. And I came to Toronto basically with nothing and I started really feeling like I was living a struggle for the first time. Mm. And it was only after that that I started understanding why people demonstrate. I started thinking more about why people feel a sense of desperation, even in a country like Canada, which I hadn't really understood as much growing up. I was very lucky. My parents did okay by the time I came along. They struggled. My parents are immigrants from Sierra Leone. They struggled when they first came to this country. But by the time I came around, my parents were doing better. And when I lost my opportunities at school and I came to the city, I personally had nothing, not even a place to live. And it started really changing my politics, understanding the life of people who live on the street, understanding homelessness. I was homeless for a very long period myself when I first came to the city. And so, yeah, my politics started to change. So this has manifested itself in you trying to affect change in this city. Sure, how about a hand for, Yeah, I mean, obviously it's... Yeah. There's this gravitational pull, it seems, for people uh, like yourself to come to Toronto and try to help the city along, change it, you know, change people's minds a little bit. How long has it been uh, since you would consider yourself an activist in this city, would you say? Many years, although I might not have always called it that. Well, um, I'm curious about that. I, I gave you some titles there yes. <laughs> in my introduction. I mean, how do you So I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, my first real job in the city of Toronto was as a harm reduction outreach worker. Right. And it was at times like that, for example, that I started realizing the importance of advocating for let's say, um, detox programs in the city so that people didn't have to like leave the province to get well. And I didn't know about things like that before. I didn't realize how impossible it is to live on a social assistance or ODSP income. Yeah. And it was doing that job that actually started to expose me to a lot of those things. So in that way, back in that day, yeah, I, I, I do feel like I was an activist, although back then I wouldn't have called myself that. Right. Even now, I hesitate because the label to me is not as important as the work itself. Yeah. And I think we get caught up in the label. What I don't like is I feel like I'm a, an established writer and journalist now, and I don't like always still being referred to as protester Desmond Cole. Right. And like, when you say referred to, who is referring to you? In my colleagues in the media. Even your colleagues in the media. Oh, yes. And so, like, I've won awards for writing, I've won awards for doing this work, and I'm proud of the work that I've done, but I see that because of the orientation of where I'm coming from, it's still like, well, you're just that annoying opposition guy. You're just that annoying, pesky black guy who 
says the thing that makes people annoyed and angry and you try to get under people's skin or whatever. So I see the ways in which there's a ceiling in part due to blackness that says my critique has to be limited in its reach, in its relevance. And so I'm not so much on labels anymore as I am about the actual work. That's that's very wisely put, if I might say. Um, we we don't have a lot of time because I want to get to this panel. I mean, it's I can't believe that all of these people are here on this show. It's amazing, and thank you all for being here uh, as well. I I want to give you a I want to give you an opportunity to. T- I know you talked about the book a little bit. Everyone's really excited about this book, and you related a personal story uh, of your own, but my understanding is that uh, this is a book that's going to be profiling other people as well? Yes, I will actually talk about other people in my book besides myself. <laughs> but isn't that the focus? Um, it's like different yeah. lives. It's, it? it's not a memoir, y'all, and if the media tries to tell you later on that it's a memoir, please help me in refusing that because... I'm not the media, by the way. I'm just a guy... <laughs> Who thought I didn't it was say a, it. Okay, I'm not um, a stand-in for all media. This book is called The Skin We're In. It's the same title as the documentary that I did with Charles Officer for CBC a couple of years ago. It is similar to a title of a piece that I wrote for Toronto Life in 2015 called The Skin I Am In. But no, this is not really about my That's story. That's my understanding, yeah. Um, I talk a little bit about myself because I can't separate my work from black liberation in general and from what I want to see happening and changing in the world for black people in this country. But I divided the year 2017 into 12 chapters, essentially. Right. One for every month of 2017. And it, I do it in a chronological way to try and tell some stories about black life in this city in the province, but more broadly, even some stories from around the country that we live in. I could have picked any year was my premise, but I wanted to pick a recent year in our history to talk about the contemporary struggle, to talk in a narrative sense about the kind of struggle that Robin is chronicling hundreds of years to the, from the past to the present in her book, from the kind of work that Cyrus and BLMTO have been making so visible and present today. I would try to just take one year and say, what if we didn't talk about the US for a minute? What if we didn't always talk about anti-blackness and racism in the context of the United States and we only focused on stories that would happen here? What would that look like? So that is the skin we're in. Uh, there's actually a 13th chapter in the book because black life and the struggles that I feel like we're going through are cyclical, so I wanted to do January 2018 to end the book. Oh, I see, okay. But that's really what I'm looking at, and I'm telling some different stories that I've seen, that I've reported on, that, you know, as a, as a journalist, you sometimes get this much space to write something, and you have so much more of the story that you want to tell. Yeah. And hopefully in people reading that book, they will get an appreciation of why we're seeing people in the streets, of why we're seeing this current incarnation and as Robin called it, this kind of like renaissance because it's the same fight that keeps being rejuvenated and reinvigorated by different actors over and over again and I feel lucky, particularly in this city with Black Lives Matter Toronto, to be alive to see and document and to participate in what's happening. Well, so what is the timeline on this book being ready for people to read? Kind if of thing? everything goes well, <laughs> September 2019, y'all will have a book in your hands, I promise. Nice. Okay. Desmond, I, uh, 
I feel very lucky to have uh, gotten to know you a little bit through this, basically. We talk here, mostly. And uh, I appreciate you making time for me in this show. And we're going to do a little panel. We don't have a lot of time, but we're going to have a short little panel uh, with everyone that's been on the show. What we've been doing the last couple of months is I actually, uh, at this point in the show, will say, uh, we're going to take suggestions from the audience. It's like improv, but it doesn't. it's never funny. <laughs> it's never funny, but we take suggestions for a conversation topic. So if you can think of one, uh, do so, and uh, I'll come to you after the break and get you to shout it out, okay? Everybody got that? Think of something, yell it out, and we'll, we'll try to talk about it, all right? Yeah. All right, we'll be back with more. How about a round of applause for Desmond Cole? More with Long Night. <laughs> This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Planet Bean Coffee and Guelph and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. And we, uh, my son and I, sometimes go to Planet Bean Coffee so I can pick up uh, some coffee. What do you get there? Well, I like their gelato. It's really good. And for some reason, I'm a kid that likes coffee. That's true. You do like uh, to have a little slurp of coffee every once in a while. What goes better with coffee in Guelph than donuts from Hamilton? Granddad's Donuts, amazing donuts. Do you have a favorite donut? Yep, it's a Boston cream. Yeah, those are pretty good, and they've got those at Granddad's. They've got good, full-sized, old-fashioned donuts. You can't go wrong. If you want to learn more about these places, and you should, go to planetbeancoffee.com and granddads.ca. Right, sir? Right. Hey! We're back on uh, Long Night. Uh, this is our panel. We have uh, Robin Maynard. We have Desmond Cole. Cyrus Marcus Ware, thank you very much for being with us. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have a little panel discussion. Um, I, I do, I, we're going to take a suggestion from the audience in a moment, but I do want to bring something up because Cyrus mentioned it uh, during uh, his segment. Uh, Black History Month uh, can be complicated for me. When people are like, oh, you must be doing stuff for Black History Month. I'm like, ah, I'm just doing stuff because I'm interested in helping people learn more about other people and culture, blah, blah, blah. I don't really... I have a bit of a problem with Black History Month. Do you have a problem with Black History Month? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's not a problem, per se, but I just wonder if it's tokenistic. Okay. So, it's not that I'm against Black History Month, per se. I do like the reframing of it as Black Futures Month within our own (laughs) communities in terms of what we are trying to do. But I think that there's a certain problem in a country that both denies black history and a black present and any black futures like as a matter of systemic organization to then suddenly say, we want all of you to talk this whole entire month, but we will shift nothing. So it becomes an insult because of the promise that it extends and then withdraws always at the end of the month, right? Yeah. So I think there's a problem with a non-commitment to creating any kind of black future or acknowledging any black history that sort of celebrates a certain month. And I think there's a particular narrative that's like, black people also fought in the war and helped build this country, Yeah. right? There's a certain way of saying, using it as this inclusion way to sort of celebrate particular kinds of black history and particular kinds of black stories that fit into a very celebratory narrative, right? Of like the wonderful things black people did here, but we don't ever talk about why black kids are getting taken out of their homes and put into child welfare. We don't talk about, you know, why... We, are, we just don't talk about any of the systemic issues that actually lead to ongoing racial divides in this place. So 
I feel mixed about it. Yeah. I like in my own community to celebrate all of our people all the time, but I believe that we do that all year long. So I think if we lived in the kind of future I would like to see, that it would, all, it would both always be Black History Month and we wouldn't require as you put it earlier, the shortest month of the year, yeah. to suddenly book all the black speakers at the very last minute. Yeah. Um, not you, but I mean everybody, right? <laughs> had this very last minute uh, to, to talk about ago. it this one time. Yeah, we talked about this months ago, and you've yeah. had us on your... I'm not talking about Vish, <laughs> but more broadly, right? Where it's just like as if people will email you on January 25th to say, we need a Black History Month speaker. It shows like the lack of attention to black yeah. people more broadly, and I think it exposes something more than anything else, really, this is, uh, this at this is, point in time. Yeah, this is why I brought it up clumsily as I did, but still. Desmond, did you want to say anything about it? I, I want to just retweet everything that Robin just said <laughs> and maybe just add that, yeah, the conundrum, it's been colonized like everything else that we try to have. Yes. So Black History Month is good as long as it pay makes white people feel like they contributed to helping us liberate ourselves in some past where we had problems and now everything is fine. Yeah. I would love it for Black History Month if we just talked a lot more about things like the Haitian Revolution where black people like, get out or we'll kill you. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, like black people defending ourselves, black people standing up for ourselves, black people actually liberating ourselves rather than these notions of, look, y'all have a $10 bill now, right? And it has a black person on it, right? And that black person got kicked out of a movie theater and maybe you know the story of Viola Desmond now where you didn't before and that's a good thing. My problem is that the idea is that as long as what's being celebrated is not too threatening to the state, it can get out to you. But if somebody does something that's actually quite threatening and that's destabilizing to white supremacy, this state will not celebrate right. that. And that's where the limitation comes in. Well put. Thank you, Desmond. Cyrus, did you want to say anything further? No, I would just echo that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, panel. Uh, okay. I didn't mean to hog the panel topic thing. Does anyone uh, have a topic for the panel that they'd like to hear discussed in the remaining time we have left? Anything? Your favorite art? Your favorite art? <laughs> well, Let's we have. The yeah, we should ask the artist first. Oh my goodness! Uh, I love black artists. I love celebrating black artists and talking about black artists. You know, black visual artists like Carrie James Marshall. Um, you know, I I love the speculative fiction writing of Octavia Butler. Um, I'm moved to tears by some of the. Uh, musicians, black musicians in the city, Zaki Ibrahim, you know, other people who have, who just sort of bring liberatory projects, pro politics into their artistic practices. That's a really hard question, but I would say that there's, you know, you have to think about what's happening in this country in the art scene. You know, I made that joke earlier, but look around it. When you're at an art gallery, if you work in the arts, look around the rooms that you're in. There are very rarely pe black people in decision-making positions, you know? So take, if you do anything in these 28 days, every single day study a different black visual artist and learn about them. You know, there's a city full of black visual artists and they're never shown in mainstream galleries, you know? When you do see a black artist shown at the AGO or at the power plant or whatever, it's usually an artist from the UK or from the United States, you know? So it would be hard to make a list right now, but I would say go out there and learn those names. Well put. Yeah. Well put. Cyrus, I, I have to say, like I know I, I listed all your things that you do, 
You seem like a superhero. Are you a superhero? You seem to know about everything. Cyrus is, there, is a superhero. Is there anything you don't know? There must be something you don't know. Okay, so my I have to say one thing. Please. I have figured out how to make a really fucking good gluten-free lemon curd marble cheesecake. <laughs> All right. And I'm really fucking proud of it. So if you want the recipe later, please come and find me. It's really, really good. You need your own cape, frankly. It's amazing. You, you're amazing. Thank you so much for... For that, I'm gonna get that recipe. Can can I actually just branch off that for a second? Because in my book, I interviewed somebody who had a situation in in late 16, early 27, 2017, where they needed support. And this person is an artist, actually. And this person had a terrible incident where the art gallery where they essentially created this space themselves, renovated it themselves as a black person, inviting other black people into the space, making space for black queer people, and for indigenous people. It was raided by the police and the whole thing got shut down really over nothing. But this person got support from a lot of art people in our communities in Toronto, including from BLMTO. And when I interviewed this individual recently to kind of tie things together for the book, they told me, yeah, BLM came through and I was so excited because it was the first time that I got to meet them and it felt like superheroes. Because these people came to me and I had never met them. I had heard of them many times and they came and they had donations and they had support and they said, we're here to help you, what do you need? And the way that that person described it to me, Cyrus, was that, like, y'all was like superheroes swooping in. and. Well, we need to honor the incredible liberatory work that you guys have been doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, um, do we do? Do you want to speak to your favorite art, or do you want to? Uh... I don't know if I can add to that. I mean, except yeah, for to say that to I be was... young is the greatest playwright that I have seen <laughs> in this. You know, it's since time, really. Oh, wow. So I think that I just want to lift off that work if we're going to be talking about the art of the future. Okay. Uh, I would want to bring that into this space as well. And otherwise, I just really echo, I mean, the superhero, um, what it really means. And it's not about the individual superhero, but it's about uh, movement superhero. And I think we're in a really inspiring time in terms of political work that is also artistic work that is also cultural work. And I feel like you can feel it in the air right now. And it's something that's really special and really resonating with me. So, yeah. Thank you, Robin. Well, uh, we have to wrap up the show. I want to give each of you an opportunity to uh, let people know if, if where they can learn more about you, I guess, on the internet or anywhere else. Uh, if you want to, uh, we've talked about some of your future plans. So, uh, that's great. But um, if you want people to, follow you and whatnot on uh, you know what I mean on the social media and things uh, that would be uh, this would be a nice opportunity perhaps uh, Cyrus do you have a you sure. have a great website by the way if I might thank, say thank I you very superhero much superhero website thank you very yeah. thank you very much my my website is just my name cyrusmarcuswear.com I'm I love posting photos of uh, things on Instagram so please come in Watch me post funny photos. Is that gluten-free cheesecake on there? It is. There are many pictures of all of the steps of me baking the cheesecake and mixing it, and you can watch little videos of it because that's what you want to do with your life. I'm going to follow that right now. Okay. Desmond? Um, I don't have a website yet. Yeah, you need a website. Yeah, I know. Um, but I'm on Twitter and Facebook, Desmond Cole, just my name. Can I just say real quick, plug, 
our city in Toronto here, we're going to do a budget for 2019 in a couple of months. We do this every year. And I want to tell all of you sitting in this wonderful old heritage preserved space that our city is making sure that all of the wonderful facilities that we have to share space together crumble and rot and just are destroyed because they want to have low taxes. And we have a budget process coming up this year and it is up to, I see a whole bunch of people who are my age in this room. And if we don't start demanding that people pay for the city that they want, we're going to lose spaces like this and a lot of important public spaces where we can gather to have conversations like this. I encourage you to get involved in any way that you can for any programming that you care about in your city budget and tell the freaking fat cats that actually run this city that they need to pay to have the privilege of living in this wonderful space. Thank you, Desmond. Robin? Um, I have a website. It's just robinmaynard.com. But uh, I'm on Twitter. It's at Policing Black. But what I wanted to give, because since we're allowed to give plugs, I'm yes. deciding I'm allowed to give a plug. Um, somebody that I wrote about in my book, but I've since really been in touch with over time, uh, she's a black woman named Majiza Phillip. She had her arm broken by the police in 2014. All kinds of really awful racism. And right now, you know how the police budget in Toronto is like a billion dollars, but when we are harmed by the police, we have to literally crowdfund? And she's just trying to crowdfund enough money to actually uh, take on the SPVM, the police in Montreal right now. She's like $6,000 out of the $10,000 that's necessary. And I just hate that we literally have to ask for crumbs like this. But given that there's a huge room of people, given that this is a podcast, if everybody was able to give like $10, $15, I just think we need to support really in the small ways that we can. Um, people that are really trying to take this fight that really is for all of us, right? So if you just Google Majiza Phillip GoFundMe, you will find it. And I really would encourage you to give whatever money you can uh, towards what she's trying to raise for the end of the month. So spell, spell that's my out. plug. Majiza is M-I-J-I-Z-A. Phillip is P-H-I-L-I-P. Uh, please, please. It's I hate that we have to do these GoFundMes yeah. just to really go after the people that are breaking our arms, but this is the way it is, so I would love it if y'all would support. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you very much for being here at uh, Long Night. We're going to be back, uh, I believe, at Workman Arts, right, on March 29th for more Long Winter. Uh, for those of you who are in the room, there's lots of Long Winter tonight to experience, so go check stuff out. My name's Vish Khanna. You can follow me on Twitter, I also have a website. Uh, it's myname.com. And then also, uh, oh, the podcast. The podcast is Creative Control. Thanks for listening to it if you're doing that right now. If you're not listening to it but want to, please subscribe. And I'd like to thank the Bicycles and James Keast and the Long Winter crew and the Workman Arts people and all of you for being here and my lovely and amazing and incredible panelists, Robin Maynard, Desmond Cole, Cyrus Marcus Ware. Thank you so much for all of you. Uh, to all of you for being here. We'll see you next time. Thank Have a good you, night. Beach. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.